Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. This is a segment that we call Reality Asserts Itself. Please don't forget the donate button and sign up for our email list. And I'll be back in just a few seconds with Jane McAlevey, the union organizers organizer. So this is a continuation of my series of interviews with Jane McAlevey, which focuses on the lessons and experiences that helped shape her worldview and built her approach to organizing workers. Jane's the author of several books, including No Shortcuts and Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, which was named the most valuable book in 2012 by The Nation magazine. Jane organizes and teaches organizing to organizers sometimes more than 10,000 at a time. That's right, tens of thousands of organizers around the world have trained in Jane's methodology. If you haven't watched part one of this series, it's probably a good thing to go back and start at the beginning because this will all make more sense. But now we're gonna just jump right in. All right, thanks for joining me again, Jane. Always a pleasure to be here, Paul. Thank you. So you distinguish between advocacy mobilizing and organizing. What's the difference? Yeah, there's a really fundamental difference. And I want to, if I was going to start a slightly longer discussion about the differences in the, what I call sort of the tools available for change, I would just say there's sort of one step that comes beforehand, which is charity. I just didn't analyze that much because I think people understand what charity is. You know, you write a check, you're not pretending to change something. You're, you're, you're doing so in an effort usually to help people in a, in a flood, in a hurricane, in a fire, in a something like that, right? Or, or immigrants coming in who need, you know, clothing, et cetera. So that's charity. And I just like to note it as one of the, you know, it's a fourth distinction, but we're not going to dwell on it because I think people understand what charity is. It's not a social change strategy, but it is an important way that people can make a contribution to something that makes them feel good, right? So that, that sort of matters as a starting point. But in No Shortcuts, which was my PhD dissertation, so it gave me a little more time than either my first or third book to really dive into the subject matter, I realized, I felt like I realized that for about 15 years inside the U.S. trade union movement, there was a very heated debate in the U.S., and it spilled out into Canada and around the world um, about unions, a set of unions declaring themselves as the organizing unions, that they were going to begin to organize again. And this starts in the mid-1990s, really 1996. And, and it took me till 15 years into, this is the decade to reorganize workers because we're going to build organizing unions and let me let me just jump in for a sec for people who aren't into this at all. When if I if I, assuming I'm correct, when unions talk about organizing, they mean unor workers that are not in unions organizing unorganized workers. That's right. And what they and, and they'll even distinguish it in a way that I've said in my books I find offensive, but that's a detail, which is a lot of unions will have an ex what they call an external organizing program, which is by the way different than what they call an internal organizing program. Most have scrapped both, but if they have them, they're still sort of like this, you know, Berlin Wall, whatever. There's a wall that separates the two departments in a lot of unions, which is problem number one, just for starters, that you see the workers not yet in the union as somehow fundamentally different and deserving of different methods and a different strategy and different everything. 
than the workers once they've formed a union, um, which I'm going to get to. So it, it really was 15 years into the work, I think, before I got very clear that the set of unions calling themselves the organizing unions, all of whom I was working with, actually were doing something different. They were doing something called mobilizing. Um, and there might have been some, some actual bringing in workers who were not yet unionized through the, what they called the external organizing program, but they were using methods that were methods that were closer to mobilizing for a sort of get out the vote um, election in political circles or something than actually what people who do what I, for lack of a better term, you know, I've been labeled by calling it deep organizing. And in some ways that's also crazy, all these words, because I just mean organizing, right? But there's, but to distinguish it, I basically wrote a book saying, look, let's just get it clear. There's something called advocacy, there's something called mobilizing, and there's something called organizing. And everyone who says that they're doing organizing is mostly doing mobilizing. And that's why after the promise of sort of the late 1990s and the first decade of this century, there was a lot of promise that trade unions were going to expand and find their power again. And, and in fact, a continuation of the problematic language was unions would grow again. Uh, and grow is a key word, uh, as opposed to expand, as opposed to, you know, raise the participation rates, as opposed to a lot of things. So advocacy, so I go deeply into this in the book. Advocacy, I say, is essentially, you write a check, I write a check to Greenpeace USA or Canada or Greenpeace Europe um, or to the American Civil Liberties Union or something like that. Even Doctors Without Borders, a little bit different, maybe they're hybrid charity, but like you write a check to a group to do something on your behalf uh, for you. And who you're paying are professional staff who advocate for certain positions. Uh, all of the public interest research groups, sort of the, Ralph, the history of the Ralph Nader work. And as you can tell, I'm listing organizations that, by the way, I support a lot of them. So this is not, uh, I'm not dissing them. I wanna be really clear that if we don't understand the difference between the function of these organizations and their limited capacity or expanded capacity to change the politics of the world right now, we're going to be screwed. So that's why this matters. So advocacy, you write a check, you send them money, and they are actually advocating for change, different than a straight up charity who's just plugging a problem, right? But you're hiring communications, lawyers, lobbyists in your state capitals, provincial capitals, Washington, D.C., wherever you are, European Union Federation meetings, whatever. Um, so that's what advocacy is. And I'm going to argue actually way too much of even the trade union movement treats their entire approach to change right now in sort of an advocacy bubble. But then there comes a really confusing one, which is mobilizing versus organizing. So I'm going from charity to advocacy to mobilizing to organizing as I lay it out in the book. And under mobilizing, I say, it's a much bigger step forward. It's great. Why? Because it involves ordinary people. So mobilizing is typical of a lot of single issue um, campaigns, things like climate justice, uh, Occupy Wall Street. I mean, there's a whole lot of, um, there's a whole lot of sort of eventism, I would call it, um, eventism, uh, rallies, protests. And so when people see people on the streets, they say, I'm organizing because they're putting people on the streets. And I'm going to say, you're mobilizing. And it's really different. Because mobilizing is moving the already convinced 
people who already agree with you kind of off their couch and getting the mechanics better to get them like off their couch and out at a protest or off their couch to a city council meeting or off their couch to some event or action you're doing. But the limitation of it, which is severe and problematic, is it's not focused on the people who don't agree with you or don't agree with us. And what and that's what separates one of the key differentiating marks that I say separates mobilizing from organizing is that organizers wake up every morning and they're focused on who are the people not coming to our meetings, who are the people who have never come to an action, who are the, in our case, workers, who are the workers who aren't following us on social media, who are the workers who run away uh, you know, from the reps of the union when they see them walking down the hall or duck into the bathroom or you know, turn their head the other way. Um, who, are, who are those workers? Because real organizers spend all of our day on that set of players in order to build strong trade unions. So our method is a method about base expansion. It's about how do you enable people who maybe think Donald Trump was going to stand up like to big corporations because he gave like a big rap about it. Um, that's a bit of an extreme one, but it's also real. Or who may think, you know, that Joe Manchin, as I saw yesterday for the 90th time, is being called a hero by Cecil Roberts, which is very um, unfortunate, the head of the mine workers union. Um, so, you know, uh, it's there's so many levels of problematic, it's hard to describe. But organizers wake up and see a bunch of workers, could be coal miners in West Virginia, as an opportunity for a deep series of conversations that help those workers connect the dots between actually why their boss in the pit they're in is a jerk and that that jerk who's oppressing them is linked directly to Joe Manchin, who is not doing them any favors, his bazillionaire daughter who's you know stealing all sorts of money from the feds, steal I say loosely, um, and then more importantly, to like Donald Trump, right? There's a through line right there. So organizers enable people through a, the way we do our work, the way we have our conversations, and our focus is on those people and helping them make the connections to understand how they know their boss in the third shift is a jerk, but they can't make the connection between the jerk of the boss and the third shift to the fact that Donald Trump is full of crap every day of the week when he pretends to say he's going to be there for their families, right? So, you know, organizing is a radical departure from what mobilizing is. There's too little of it. Everyone confuses the two. And I'm going to argue that those of us who have continued to win really hard union campaigns, both unionization campaigns and big important strikes, Anyone who's been actually winning at that level, which is blessedly most of my life work, it's because we're doing real organizing. Because we say to the workers who are already with us, hang tight, there's some important work for you to do, uh, but who has to be moved in this facility in order for you to win what you want to build to 95% unity or 90% unity? You have no choice in a trade union campaign if you mean to win and if you've really raised workers' expectations, if they can change their lives. You got no choice but to go focus on the hardest to move workers.
that's what separates organizing from mobilizing. And then who sort of has control of decision-making and they go, they go together, right? But in order to move the kind of conversation that's going to enable a Trump voter to come around to realize that actually that was probably not um, something that was good for that worker's family, there's going to be a lot of steps um, in between uh, and conversations that we're going to be committed to having. So uh, I'm sure some of the people listening to this who primarily are involved in mobilizing say, hang on, I do a lot of organizing to mobilize. I'm on the phones. We have phone trees. uh, We get people out on the streets. uh, We're trying to affect public opinion. uh, uh, You know, in the course of doing it, of course, I wind up, you know, talking to my friends and neighbors who don't agree with what I'm mobilizing for. So I am talking to people who, you know, who, who aren't already in agreement. Um, so how, how do you distinguish this? I almost think you should use the term deep organizing or because it, it, it but anyway, how do you, how, what do you say to them? So they get the difference. I mean, a <clears throat> couple of things. I, again, I don't want to emphasize that it's bad, but there, there, there's two things. One is what you're describing is more eventism, right? You're just turning out a bunch of random bodies to a march or a protest. Um, and, and it's not essential to you generally to actually have them change their mind about something. Um, and if they don't agree with you generally in the mobilizing model, you're just moving on because you've just got to get X number of bodies to do something. And this has infected the union. So it's like, you know, there'll be a press conference and they don't care who comes. They just need 40 warm bodies. I call it workers as props. You just ring through until you get the one who's going to show up at the press conference and like stand behind some designated person. Or if they let a worker speak, they're going to have like written a 12 page script for them and ask them not to veer off it. Like it's, you know, control central. So, um, which I would never do in a million years. Right. If like, if I get a bunch of workers at a press conference, I'm just going to let them have at it because they're going to say really smart stuff. So, um, so, so the distinction is, Again, not that it's bad to spend time calling up your friends or calling someone up to get to a protest. You know, I think it was great that the women's protests were the largest protest until the George Floyd protests, the largest protests um, ever. Uh, And like both great issues, like the women's march after Trump was elected and the the explosion of protests around um, George Floyd, meanwhile, was passing one by one in the United States or voting restrictions state by state. So... You know, putting eventism in the context of what is the power required to actually change the conditions for women or for black people in the United States or the world, they're going to happen by calling up a few friends, pissing a couple off, getting them to not agree with you to go to a march. That is not organizing. That is not building power. Organizing is centered on building mass power, power, not narrative change. So narrative change is this language that wants my, it just makes my head explode every time I'm in a discussion with someone about it. It's the mobilizing types who are like, we do narrative change. And you can read it in all the organizational literature too. It's like, I'm like, oh, what do you do? They're like, well, we do organizing. I'm like, great, how do you do that? They're like, narrative change. And I'm like, no, 
narrative change is not building power. You, there's this whole debate. There's so many debates that uh, want to make my head explode. And it's a lot of young people. And honestly, it's, um, I love them. And I mean, these are like open struggles I have with a lot of young organizers right now in their 20s. It's because they, unlike me, I came up with mentors who taught me everything they knew. And my mentors were two people removed only at most from the 1930s trade unionists uh, who built the and 40s trade unionists who built the, like I, I'm, it goes Leon Davis, Jerry Brown, me. Like I'm third generation and good organizers can literally tell you who trained them, who developed them and what the tree was back to the 1930s and 40s. I can do it. And every serious organizer I know I can be like, who is your mentor? Who mentored them? And you'll go straight to the 1930s and 40s. So for all of us who hear this dialogue about narrative change and turning people out to protest and get one more body and um, uh, it's like nails on a chalkboard to us. It's not the same thing as having a strategic approach to key industries to build mass power based on the power structure analysis of which workers have the capacity to build the kind of power that if and when they choose to create a crisis for capital, for corporations, they can do it. That's organizing. And those are the workers that require a great deal of energy to move like fossil fuel workers, right? Like, like workers involved in the fossil fuel economy for whom it's a very different discussion. And I've done it. And it's a great discussion to have. I think a big problem is mobilizers don't actually have faith the intelligence of ordinary people, honestly. Um, and I think organizers have like, we wake up every day and I say, if you don't have deep, unabiding, genuine respect for the brilliance of what it takes to survive everyday life in American or Canadian society or fill in the blank society, if you don't deeply respect that, that a worker who is going to work to try and hold up a household family, you know, with four people in it, scrapping around for healthcare, uh, who hears, hey, you should just support something called the Green New Deal because it's going to be better for your kids. It's like, it's actually not going to be better for their kids if they're starving the next day or homeless because the fossil fuel job they have that pays them a really high wage with really good benefits goes away the next day. It's like we have not even close, we don't know how to close the gap and have a conversation as a mature movement that says no one in any of those industries is going to lose a penny or a, or a benefit in the transition to a new economy. But that's, that's, and we're not at that place precisely because everyone's mobilizing and they think you can literally do top-down change. There's a theory out there, I'm going to name it, the one that I'm thinking of the most because it's influenced a lot of young people called momentum. There's one of many theories that are hotly debated or highly debated among a small crowd of people. And this theory says, by the way, very specific in the US, but spread into Europe, um, if you get 3% of the population taking action, um, it's like event, called eventism, that's why it makes me nuts in literature, like they literally look back at all events through time, and they come up with this formula that if that big change happens when 3% of the country is activated. I don't know what that means, you know, activated to clean their oven or activated to like change the world, but activated. Um, and it's the biggest bunch of bullshit I've ever heard. It's like, are you seriously? No, 
the big changes that happened happened because the black church was the backbone of the civil rights movement and had a strategic analysis and a plan to disrupt capital and capitalism by messing with the Southern producers through economic targets. That was the real power in the civil rights struggle. And the trade union movement, uh, another period of a lot of events, apparently, if you study eventism, uh, wasn't just holding mass rallies of 3% of the population. They were digging into the strategic industries of the 1930s and 40s. And those of us still winning today have been digging into the strategic industries of the current present moment, which is, you know, what are the jobs that can't easily be shipped abroad, for starters, um, and... Uh, that and where the workers are hard to replace, right? It's it's not that it's not that complicated. I mean, it's apparently very complicated because hardly anyone is doing it. But it shouldn't be that complicated if we understand how to think about power. And at the end of the day, all of my books are a lesson about power. And my I think my endless life lesson is trying to explain to people we don't have anywhere near the power required to change the fossil fuel subsidies right now into green job subsidies. And if we did, we could do it overnight. Because once we can say to workers, you're not going to lose a penny, uh, then they'll happily move to a green economy. But the environmental movement is so invested in talking to itself and insulting most workers for too, way too long that they're like digging out of a hole right now on these questions. And it's like, you know, so I say to them, you don't have the power yet to change the subsidies. And until you build the power to change the subsidies, you can't move that work. So organizing, I think I was so desperate to write the middle book, No Shortcuts, because there is just such a lack of understanding of what power is. And in that book, I go deep into a series of charts that are called power required and then power available. Um, and I try to draw out uh, lots of lessons about power. And even just saying like, the, as, as a negotiator, I think when I became a, a chief negotiator of a lot of big contracts, the, the question of how much power was required to win the demands that we had was super central um, to the work. And, and then having a straight conversation with workers, like, here's your set of demands. Okay, here's the power required to win them. Are you prepared for 100% all-out strike? And actually being able to recruit you know, 95% or north of 90% of your coworkers to go on strike with you. If so, you can win. If you can only unify 35% of the people behind your demands, you're going to win 35% of your demands. It's a pretty straightforward equation. So most of what's going on now in terms of left activism is mobilizing people in the streets to a large extent. Sometimes it's about voting, but largely it's about trying to influence, pressure uh, the elites to stop doing what they're doing. Um, and and as, I, as you say, it's good. It draws public attention to an issue and makes people talk about it to the extent you can get people to know it's happening because mainstream media mostly just ignores it and our kind of media is rather marginalized but still and 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 when campus it's great on campuses because it gets you know students involved and they talk about something and then they say oh geez i'm actually going to commit to this i'm going to go out and march and it moves people 
But that isn't contending for power. And what you're talking about goes beyond just the question of like contending for power. You're talking about contending for power in the society. It's not just about how do you win in a specific sector or get a better contract. You're actually talking about strategic industries that if you can enliven these unions, not just to make it a better union for the workers in that union, but that unions can start to play a role they have to play if we're ever going to have politics, a government that actually deals with climate in a serious way or nuclear weapons in a serious way uh, and and a host of other issues that that without unions playing this role. So when you're talking about power, it's not a narrow definition. It's both a narrow definition of power and a broader definition of power. Or I would say, I would amend that to say it's broad and specific rather than broad and narrow. It's always broad, but there has to be, well, what connects the dots for an organizer or strategist is all good organizers are strategists, all good organizers are educators. It's like those two things are inseparable from the work of organizing, but it's what's the, what's the big picture and then how do workers understand what I call a credible plan to win. So when I'm teaching workers how to be worker organizers, rank and filers, full-timers, any category, like like organic, something I call an organic leader, right? Which we've, I think, talked about in an earlier segment. But organic leaders are the, are the most trusted workers among their peers. And part of why organic leaders are natural organizers is because they're already the kind of people who delegate. They're already the kind of people who like make teamwork happen in their shift or their unit. They're, nat- they're naturals at it. They don't, they, no one ex- explained a skill to them. But so whenever I'm talking to organizers, whether they're in the ranks or not, I say, you can't move a hard-to-move worker leader in a conversation where they believe they disagree with you if you don't have a credible plan to win. And essential to a credible plan to win, like, why am I going to risk something, right? You're going to risk something when you believe the possibility for success is going to make it worth it for you to risk your relationship to your your second shift. Can, I, can I add something to this? Because, you know, I've I worked on the railroad for five years. I worked in the post office driving a truck for three years. But I've also worked in the film industry and I and whatever. And, and, and th- people that haven't really been in the working class don't get that it's a different culture. And and one of the things I think it's that connects with what you're saying is that to be respected on the shop floor you actually have to be good at your job. You have to work hard. You have to be intelligent. Uh, you have to be unselfish. Um, and you're respected for these kind of normal human qualities. Like if you're lazy or you just like Absolutely. to mouth off about stuff, nobody respects you. You got to be, and sometimes it's even in many jobs, people's safety depends on how responsible you are as a worker. So these organic leaders you're talking about, it's actually very important that they actually lead in the actual work process and then people will listen to them. Yes, it's completely true. And it's at, when I do trainings for people who are new to the work, and particularly when I'm doing like the mass training program that you've mentioned, you know, we've got 10,000 people involved in um, a, a training program from all over the world. I lead with the session on organic leader. I didn't, what I call organic, what, and not just what I call. I just want to say, because uh, I think you said in the beginning, like training program on my ideas. I mean, really, my ideas are the 1930s ideas. There's nothing, there's nothing particularly new. 
I'm trying to recreate and adapt for today, like the whole worker discussion that I hope we get to have um, is, is, a, is another extension of the power analysis, another extension of the, of the bottom-up building and the organizing work to help people come to understand a system called capitalism without ever talking about the system called capitalism because they're going to say the word on their own at some point. Like I, I have watched this happen so many times in my life where I say it's not useful for me to use that word, not in the U.S. Um, but my goal is that actually a worker who initially is a Republican voter um, or a non-voter uh, is going to, in the course of one campaign, come to shift their politics because they're going to come to their own conclusion that they didn't really understand that capitalism was just this big, complicated political economic system that's not working for their families at all, at all. Um, and that happens best in the session where we call the you know, chief financial officer um, in. Uh, and it's why I love to be big enough in bargaining. We have hundreds of workers listening to some bozo lie about the numbers when we've got better numbers to actually tell the truth. So, you know, yes, it's... Um, there, there, there is, there is so much about the work that begins and ends with what we were discussing earlier, which begins and ends with respect and and teaching the concept. When I'm teaching organic leader ID, a lot of people who are like full time, I don't even like these words, but like, let's say full time position holders in unions or full time um, organizers versus in the ranks. Whenever I talk about that, they say, but that's all just like a, that's a secret. That's like, you don't actually, you don't actually talk about who the organic leaders are with the workers. <laughs> it's like, actually, the whole point is the conversation with the workers. And they themselves tell us who the leader is, who the informal or organic leader is in their shift. And I always say, it's for starters, it's going to be one of the best workers. And the reason that they're not, wrong, you know, they're not jumping at the union traditionally is because they want really good work done in their unit or on their shift or in the work that they're doing. They tend not to be shop stewards. They tend not to be the people who want to enforce grievance rules in a contract. They're really focused on bigger questions of production, which last I looked is actually what Marx and a bunch of other people were trying to get at, like the questions of production. And it's interesting to me uh, when you really get deep in the weeds about some of these questions, how many contradictions, the more, how would I call them, a sort of more overt left. Uh, there's like a lot of contradictions get wrapped up in these discussions because I think a lot of what I would maybe label the sectarian left, you know, rejects this idea outright. They pick fights with me about the organic leader concept straight up. They say every worker is a leader. And I'm like, you've never won a big, hard campaign. I, that's just my answer right now. I just say you've never won a big, hard campaign. Well, I'm not sure they've ever worked in a real, yeah. you know, that kind of workplace. So. Yeah, I mean, what, I what, 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 Yeah, go ahead. What, what, do you say, what do you say to young politicized workers, and there's tons of them, yeah. uh, you know, people think of the workers and they have this weird stereotype uh, in their or head. Workers. In fact- yeah. Yeah, a, a large number of the people that are mobilizing, that are in the streets, that are active, that are online reading and educating themselves and so on and so on, a lot of them are workers. In fact, a lot of university students come from working class families. So this issue, but, but, but what do you say to a young worker who's in a union 
and says, well, the reason I go out and mobilize around issues and get into the streets is because the union, it just seems so damn hopeless. I don't even know where to start in dealing in my organizing in my union. The leadership is so in control. Uh, I don't even know where to begin. In fact, most of the, and I know this is true for a lot of unions, most of the workers are so disengaged, never mind from politics, but from the union itself. Like, what, where you want me to organize, but where, how do I begin? Yeah. Well, let's, let me go backwards for a minute and just say that I want to link to the comment you just made to what I was describing earlier as means if they do, if they use the word organizing, having the external organizing program and then the internal organizing program, that's the root of the problem that you were just raising which is a lot of unions do stereotypically if they, if they, you know, bumble into a, you know, a hot shop, for example, uh, and hot shop means boss is something really egregious. Um, every worker's really pissed off. They just march right down and vote in some kind of unionization election. Um, Cause they're on fire. Like the bosses, you know, fired a bunch of people or, or made them quit and rehire. Um, uh, but once they're in, the union just collects the dues money and, you know, sends them a newsletter four times a year and gives them a tire discount or, you know, an insurance, a life insurance discount um, and thinks that that's engaging with them. And so it, it's like I call it putting workers to sleep. And then they think at election time they can just flip a switch and, and wake the workers back up. It's like this little, we're going to put you to sleep and I'm going to wake you up. And it's so offensive to me. And that's the language that's used, by the way, sometimes. I used to be national deputy director in some unions, so it's like I, the language still, you know, burns in my, um, in my soul. When you say wake them up, go wake them up to go vote for the Democratic Party, and then you can go back to sleep again. Yeah, yeah, or your, or you know, the NDP or whoever it is. Like, yeah, go vote for. It happens all over the place. I mean, it's happened in Germany. Um, didn't work out so well for a bunch of those parties, but anyway. So, um, so that the only way that people will be connected is when you continue to use the methods that we think of, that a lot of people think of as sort of like external organizing. Like if you're in a really hard campaign, you know, and I outline this a lot in No Shortcuts. Um, when I used to be uh, a leader in the SEIU um, nationally, which was brief in my life period because I objected to too many of these practices, you know, I got down to our national headquarters after winning a ton of campaigns and they were like, oh, let's go get her, you know. And I got there and the instructions were when you won a quote unquote external organizing campaign, the instructions out of D.C. were essentially uh, burn the wall charts, like the wall charts are the, the tool that we've taught workers during a hard campaign. It teaches them how to track who their organic leader is. It's a conversation they're having to identify the most respected worker leaders that it takes energy to persuade because they're linked to their management team and the manager knows they're their best worker. I mean, these are all very complicated, contradictory issues you have to work with as an organizer. Um, and the instructions were literally uh, to burn the charts, to essentially remove from the workers the knowledge base of how they built the power among 2,000 of them to win an election because the union then wants to immediately do the opposite of what I believe in, which is lower expectations as quickly as they can for a very minimalist contract that gives people like a little raise and some decent rights on the job. And, you know, when I go into a fight with thousands of workers, it is not to have minimal life change. 
It's to upend the goddamn system that they're in and to have them win fully employer paid health care, which in the United States is a huge deal. Sorry, which we're in Canada, but like the biggest cost item um, in most workers' lives and in most contract campaigns. Um, pension, you know, the right to a real weekend, the time off. I mean, just the most basic. I mean, I want really radical change. So if workers just went all out, 2,000 workers just went all out to form a union. The last thing on planet Earth I'm going to do is like burn the charts and put them to sleep. That's that's the mentality that we're up against. So for the young worker who's frustrated with their union, I just want to go back to the segment where we were talking about the radical transformation of Chicago teachers and of LA teachers. Right? It's you got to start with you got to start by being able to use your first organizing skills to actually begin to build a base of people. And I would say a lot of them are going to be activists. They're not going to be leaders. A lot of people that you're describing to me are going to be worker activists who are reading some progressive left literature uh, or something somewhere. Um, and they're good people. And what I implore of them is to understand that they're an activist in their workplace and their central job is to begin the process of understanding who those most respected workers are. That's job one. Then to begin to sit down with them and begin to have a dialogue about some of the things that might be good to be different in the next contract, and then begin essentially start organizing without you know, help from your higher ups, because that's fundamental. And I think a lot, a lot I don't mean a lot, but definitely people who are taking the international courses that we're teaching um, are learning those skills and are hearing those messages. It's, it's less important to hear from me. They're getting those messages from some of our guest trainers, some of our co-trainers. Like, like I'll bring in a Stacey Davis-Gates or a Alex Caputo-Pearl or any number of those are some of the big leaders of the, the transformed unions here and just have them do a session where they talk about what it took to, to rebuild their union. And they usually start with personal stories about basically building the base inside of their union to wrestle the change process inside of their union to then go on amazing contracts. Well, which also means at some point in this process, uh, you're, con you're creating a slate and you're going to try to take over the union. I mean, in the final analysis, the kind of strategy you're talking about, you're going to need elections to be won by, you know, really progressive workers who have won over other workers and they take over the union. That's right. Progressive, yeah, progressive and or, and or recently, and or in the process of transforming, right? Like workers who are, who are coming to new conclusions about some of the issues, but that they're unifying first and foremost around that they want, they really want a better contract. And they want the contract that's gonna to respond to not just wages, but issues of how they can care for their patients if they're nurses, how good the car is painted, you know, if they're painted cars, how good the um, rail system is working, if they're rail workers, how good the how clean the buses are, if they're transit drivers, like this is, these are major issues for workers. And when unions just go blah, blah, blah wages, they're gonna turn right off. That's not their biggest issue. It's not most workers. I mean, it is a big issue, but when I say to people, which I say a lot, wages are not usually the biggest issue in any campaign I've run. They're an issue. It's not the most important issue. People who just haven't done this work, it's the same, but they're like, really? I thought all workers really want wages. It's like, really? Again, you know, you have not run a campaign. It's about dignity and respect. And that's why getting, winning over the most respected workers is crucial to the plan. Yeah, because to a large, for a large number of people, 
all people, and uh, including workers, part of having a meaningful life is the work you do. That's right. And if and if your work is disrespected, that's disrespecting the core of your identity. If you if you take your your work seriously, and most that's workers right. do. That's right. That's exactly right. All right. So uh, Jane has a hard out time wise, and because I'd love to keep going right now, but I can't. So we're going to say end the segment now. And please join us for the next one. And uh, hopefully there'll be a few more because I think this is like critical stuff. Uh, thanks, Jane. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Again, please don't forget the donate button. We can't do this if you don't do that. Subscribe on if you're on YouTube, get on our email list and all the buttons.